1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the National Books Network podcast in the channel Spirituality and Mindfulness. I'm glad to have you here. I'm Jack Petranker, and today our guest is um, Seth Siegel. Who is the author of a new book called Buddhism and Human Flourishing, a modern Western perspective? So, welcome, Seth. Glad to be here, Jack. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to it. Um, so, Seth, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and and how you came to write this book?
1: Well, first of all, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've uh, been practicing. Uh, doing psychotherapy for about 50 years now, although I'm retired from practice right now. And I'm also ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest in the White Plum Sangha. Uh, And in that capacity, I've also been doing um, pastoral care work uh, at a local hospital. Um, And I've been engaged in Buddhist practice for about 25 years now, although my interest in Buddhist practice goes back about 50 years. Um, And I think that the book... Really, kind of evolved out of my own experience of my own practice and looking at the teachings as they're um, as they're enunciated in the classical Buddhist texts in the Pali texts in the Chinese and Japanese texts and looking at listening to the Dharma talks from uh, teachers I've had in various traditions and finding ways in which what I'm reading and what I'm hearing um, Agree with my own findings and my own discoveries in my practice in ways in which they seem to be divergent, and I can't square to seem seem to square the difference between them. and And in the process, also noticing the way that some of the things I'm reading in contemporary Buddhist texts and some of the things I'm hearing in contemporary Buddhist talks by Buddhist teachers really don't square with what uh, you read in the suttas and the sutras, and looking at the kinds of changes and sometimes subtle changes sometimes explicit, sometimes tacit that they've made in their understandings of Buddhism and seeing how those agree or disagree with my own experiences uh, in my own Buddhist practice. So uh, in, in thinking about this and observing this, I noticed certain kind of patterns in the kinds of changes people make in the way they interpret Buddhist teachings uh, that, make it, that make those teachings more commensurate, I think, with, um, with certain uh, cultural trends in the West. Having to do with um, the scientific naturalism, and having to do with some of the ideas we've inherited from the uh, Greco-Roman tradition concerning what the well-lived life might be like. So, uh, so I think that I think those things are the uh, genesis for uh, the ideas in the book. Okay, that makes good
2: sense. So, yeah, as I was reading it, I it seemed to me there were two different, very closely related, but but two somewhat different. Um, Threads. one was that that in your own reading um, or your own way of practicing as you say um, y- you really felt that there were certain parts of the Buddhist tradition that that just didn't didn't make sense a- as you saw it and and I mean maybe that's saying it too strongly it didn't didn't make sense in terms of the context of your practice but also that they didn't square with our Modern Western understanding, which, as you say, comes out of the, the Greco-Roman tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, I mean, I think there's a slight distinction to be made there, but they both seem to point in the same direction.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that um, that those of us who have grown up and acculturated in the West have received a lot of, uh, a lot of the, these ideas in a way through osmosis. They they become very natural to us. They they underlie our basic perceptions and understandings of the way the world works, and they're not things that we can easily rid ourselves of. Um, it's not as if we can adopt a whole different way of looking at things. Um, we we can we can come upon ideas that that are different than ours, and we can try to assimilate them to the way we already understand them, or we can try to uh, accommodate ourselves some ways to those ideas, but. And 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 sometimes we can we can find our way through, to um, being able to make them workable for us. But other times there's just too much of a dissonance, and we can't really, we can't really turn ourselves inside out, so to speak, to adopt an entirely different way of looking at the world. Um, so, so so I think that I think those are crucial. I, um, often when we try to do that, we end up with some internal dissonance where we're almost engaging in a pretense about what we're believing or we're holding two divergent ideas at the same time that are incompatible, and that's really not a very good way to end up.
2: Right. So maybe maybe you could take as an example one that you do discuss at some length in the book, and, and I think the one where that's most obvious for a lot of people is the issue of rebirth.
1: Right. So uh, that would be a good example, Um Most people in the West have other ideas about what happens after death. They either have a naturalistic understanding that when you die, that's it, that consciousness kind of winks out and it's all over and that there's nothing uh, what it's like to be after one is dead. There's no experience after that. Or they have a belief in a kind of Judeo-Christian belief that one goes to heaven or hell. But the idea that one is reborn into another body is just a very alien belief for most, American, for most Westerners. I mean, there are exceptions. There are um, people, believers in various kind of cult systems, for example, who would be comfortable with that. Um, so you have to decide what to do with that. If, if, if you are um, a naturalist, uh, the ideas are kind of a non-starter for you because it's very hard to understand how something like a karmic formation can be transferred through the ether into a, into a developing embryo. There's just no conceivable way through cause and effect that we can understand it, uh, unle- unless you assume that um, there can be uh, mental activities that can be totally detached from the body in a separate way. And again, dualism seems to be a kind of a non-started, non-starter started non belief for a lot of Westerners. Mm-hmm. So, so you're left with a quandary about what to do with that. And, and what most Western Buddhists do, I think, is interpret rebirth not as a literal thing, but as a metaphor that that um, in each moment, so to speak, we're reborn on the basis of our past actions and thoughts, and that, that those the past actions and thoughts form the karma that creates our character and creates the way we move forward into the world and creates who we become. So we understand rebirth in that sort of way. And, and I think this problem isn't unique to Westerners. I think that as Indian Buddhism moved into China and Japan and Korea and Vietnam, there, there was a similar kind of problem in that uh, these are cultures that have traditional beliefs in in uh, ancestor worship, where one can um, where one envisions I, your ancestors be as existing still in their some form similar to the form they existed in life, but on a different plane of some sort. Um, and so it, it it makes little sense, for example, to say prayers to one's ancestors or devote merit to one's ancestors as if they're still living on some other plane, like a heavenly plane, for example, and at the same time think that they've been reborn into a different body. And somehow uh, East Asians have managed to live with this kind of dissonance. And I I think sometimes they live with incompatible ideas about what happens after death. And uh, maybe they don't make too much of it, but, um, but I, but I think they were all, whenever you're, you're bringing this idea into a culture where it's not second nature, it becomes a, it becomes a very difficult block to, uh, to the assimilation of those ideas.
2: Right. So I, I think it's easy to see the issue with rebirth, but your um, analysis or, or way of looking at Buddhist teachings is, is way more far-reaching than, than that. You, you really are proposing a, um, a different way of understanding Buddhist enlightenment. I mean, I, I think you say at one point in the book that that really is the heart of the book, is, is
1: you have a different or- understanding yeah go ahead right well i as the way I see it in my own experience i see i see two problems with the idea of enlightenment and and the first is that it seems to point to a kind of way that we can um rise above ourselves into a totally different way of being that that seems really beyond what anyone I know is capable of so so for example if you look at the kind of perfection that's uh that's expressed and the in say look at the ten boomies of the Bodhisattva path in Mahayana Buddhism, um, and you, you try to imagine what someone who's reached the tenth bhumi might be like. For example, it's uh, you've never met anyone like that, and you may you may have met a lot of very esteemed and accomplished Buddhist teachers. And in my life, I have met you know people that I would think are are uh, wonderful examples of Buddhist teachers and practitioners, and none of them have reached that level of absence of self or absence of desire or absence of attachment or inability to become irritated and irked you know, by disturbing events, no one has reached that level of perfection described in the sutras. So, so one thing you might say to oneself is the odds that I'm going to reach that are probably very slim. If, if the Dalai Lama isn't there and if Thich Nhat Hanh isn't there and if my own teachers aren't there uh, and if the Tibetan Lamas I've studied with aren't there, then how am I ever going to do that? What are the odds? And maybe I should be shooting for something else, less extreme than that. In some way, from what I expect out of my practice. Of course, another way of looking at it is that, uh, in in Theravadin Buddhist terms, it takes uh, many kalpas, you know, infinite number of lifetimes, almost, to reach that level. And so, if we're just beginning practice, what do we really expect from our practice? But but in addition, to, so so I, I intend in one way, I like to look at enlightenment as a as a horizon that we aim at in our practice we're headed in this direction and we're trying to gradually or perhaps more rapidly move in that direction, but it's not something we actually expect to achieve. And and maybe there isn't any kind of final actual state that we can achieve. Maybe it's always movement towards this horizon. Um, so I, I tend not to believe in the idea that there's some final place one can arrive at that's, that it's unable to, one is unable to backslide from it uh, and that it, and that it, it is a perfection in which there's no further work to be done. I think, in my own view of things, there's always, we can always be better and we can always do better and we can always be larger and we can always understand more than we do right now, whatever level we're at. But, but there's a second problem as well in that there feel, I feel like there's something wrong with that direction. Not only is it a horizon we can't reach, but maybe it's not exactly the right horizon. Um, And, and the conflict here is between ideas of enlightenment that involve the absence of any kind of, uh, craving or desire or attachment Um, and, and a kind of a Greek view of life that talks instead about a kind of right relationship with desire and attachment. Uh, When I look at the direction I want to go with my life, I don't really want to be desireless. Uh, I, 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 I don't want to not think that there are things I can work on in myself and in the world that ought to be improved. And I don't want to, um, I do want to have special relationships with certain people um, with my wife, with my children that are partial relationships that are different than the relationships I have with uh, insurance salesmen and politicians and, uh, and neighbors and so forth. Um, So while I think that there's a great deal of benefit in the idea of extending compassion and loving kindness and caring concern to all beings in the world, the idea that that ought to be an equal level for everyone and there's no special attachment to individuals, I think is a wrong-headed view of what human happiness and well-being really consists of. So, so so on the one hand, I think that, I think that the model that's presented is a little bit too extreme, that's beyond what our capabilities are. And on the other hand, I think there's something a little bit off about it. And that rather than saying that we should have no attachments and no desires, we ought to be saying that we have a right relationship to desires and attachments. In other words, we should have discerning wisdom and skillfulness. And we should know which desires are likely to lead to really our happiness and the happiness of others and not detract from our long-term higher-order goals, which they're consonant with those, and which ones are likely to undermine our long-term goals or higher-order goals or are really likely to bring misery rather than, rather than some degree of happiness in life. So I, th- I think those are two of the changes that I would want to make in, in the goal of practice. Uh, so yeah. the goal isn't something like, perfect enlightenment, but the goal now becomes moving the direction of discerning wisdom and skillful behavior, of being able to recognize uh, that thoughts are mere thoughts and not reality, and being able to understand that our conceptions of ourselves are inadequate and don't represent the fullness of our being, of um, recognizing um, to a greater degree the, the degree of ecological independence of everything with everything else. Uh, understanding how everything is connected, connected in a very deep level. Um, you we might include realizations of uh, non-duality in here as well, but I think, I think there is all movements. So for example, if you were to have um, some great experience of non-duality in a moment of Satori, uh, I, I wouldn't want you to assume that that's all there is to it, that, that that's just one glimpse of non-duality from one particular point of view and one particular perspective. And, as we grow in our practice, and as time goes on, we may have greater realizations uh, that surpass the ones we've had, and that are more complete. So, so, so I think looking at this as a never-ending process of gradual movement is, and, and a gradual opening and awakening is the way I tend to look at it.
2: Yeah. Right. So you know, <clears throat> excuse me. It reminds me a little bit of um, the story that that Thomas Jefferson um, took the New Testament and and made his own version of it where he cut out all the miraculous stuff. He didn't think that made any sense. Um, exactly. And, <laughs> um, so we're not really talking about miraculous. I mean, we really are talking about um, aspects of the teachings that you think just don't work or don't make sense. But but that sounds like what you're doing is is kind of saying, well, how can I craft this into something that makes sense for me? Is that fair? Exactly.
1: About? That, that's exactly right and I'm not denying that there may be states beyond what I'm talking about that, that I don't yet appreciate
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that, that, that may very well happen as I continue my practice, I may um, develop a greater realization of things and I might find that some things I don't currently believe are in fact true. but I don't want I don't want to hold that they're true. I want to just hold that in a kind of an openness and a not knowing and say this is this is all that I really do know about. And this is enough to orient me in my practice right now. I don't need more than this right now. Okay.
2: So so let me quote something. This You've already said this, but it, it, there's a point in the book where you say it pretty strongly, it seems to me. Um, and I want to ask you about that. You say there is a way in which the Buddhist ideal of a completely undifferentiated universal compassion reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature.
1: Yes. Yeah. So actually this is a there's a parallel debate about this, this is not only um, something that say contemporary philosophers might talk about um, like we can talk about Bernard Williams in a moment but it's also something that the Chinese dealt with uh, uh, a millennium ago there was a, a school of Chinese thought called moism which believed in impart, universal impartiality of compassion as the as the ultimate thing we all ought to be aiming for And the Confucians said, this is nonsense, the Confucians said, uh, we're born into families, we love our parents, we love our brothers and sisters more than we love strangers. And while we can extend the love that we feel for others, which is born within the the matrix of the family, and we can learn to extend it more and more outwards to more and more people and include more and more, uh, it's always an extension of something more basic, and there there are probably limits to how far we can extend it. Uh, and, and we can we can see that in our own life when we try to practice with compassion and loving kindness that that uh, we we may find it easier to extend, for example, to people than we find it ex- to extend to um, various kinds of insects and lizards and crustaceans and so forth. And and then if we succeed in extending there, you know, we can extend further. But but it's not going to be the same. Whatever love I feel for crustacean is not going to be like the love I hold for my child. it's, it's going to be an analogy to it. It's going to share some of the same elements with it, but it's not going to have that intensity. Um, I was mentioning Bernard Williams, the the British moral philosopher, and he raised the question about, uh, let's suppose that uh, you're, you're swimming at the seashore and you're swimming with your wife and someone else and a huge wave comes along and your wife and a stranger are drowning, okay, and you can only save one of them. Is it wrong to go and save your wife was the question he was addressing. And he said, even asking that question is, in his famous words, one thought too many, uh, <laughs> that that morality shouldn't be like that. There's a kind of a natural morality that we feel, that we act on, and we can extend it in some ways to others. But there's a natural love for people closer to us that that really shouldn't be eradicated. And if we did eradicate it, would we really like the kind of person that we are right now? I mean, if I wouldn't want to save my own child more than a stranger, for example, would that be the kind of person that I want to be. Or if, if there was a drug that could save someone's life and it could only save one person's life, my wife's or a stranger's, would I be, would I be moral if I chose to give it to my wife? I don't think, I think morality grows within families and within tribes and we extend it outward, but I don't think it can ever be completely impartial. That's just not human nature.
2: Yeah. It reminds me actually of a, uh, an interview I did recently in a, in a different NBN channel on a, by the author of a book on patriotism, and he says, um, says, you know, there are people who say, well, well, all ethics and all commitments ought to be universal in their application. I mean, why should our, you know, why should the fact that we're in a particular country uh, make it special somehow? Uh, he, he actually he quoted George Bernard Shaw as, as saying, uh, "Patriotism is the belief that my country is special because I was born in it." huh uh-huh. Okay. so so um but but you know, his point was no we have certain commitments by virtue of the fact that we're born into a situation um, and and that's natural and and I, I guess we're um, I want to make a connection maybe it's not the right connection to make but you a couple of times in the book you you say that there's this ideal in Zen and and I think it comes up in other traditions but apparently it's specifically discussed in the Zen tradition of um, of, of a kind of intuitive knowledge. You know, in every moment, you know the right thing to do. So let's say that you're, to use Bernard Williams' example, you're, you're swimming in the ocean and you have to save someone and you will intuitively know who the right person to save is. I guess you could say, well, maybe you know that you should save the stranger because you know, you know that they're going to go on and do great things with their lives. But, but mostly it would probably lead to saving your wife. Um, and that seems fine, but but you actually
1: question whether there can really
2: be that kind of intuitive knowledge.
1: I, I do. I I I think moral questions always involve particularities and parsing them and discerning between them. And and first of all, there's never any right or wrong, absolute right or wrong answer to moral questions. So, I mean, philosophers will all, experimental philosophers today often present these trolley problems. With right what Owen Flanagan deridingly calls trolleyology, in which you ask people, well, you know, you can a trolley is running down the track and you can pull a lever. And should you pull the lever to avoid killing five, uh, uh, five people and, and instead throw it so it only kills one person and so forth? And the assumption is that there's some absolute right answer to these, that people ought to be using logical principles to solve these kinds of problems. And, and of course, there aren't any absolute right answers to problems. I mean, the Greeks realized this long ago, that if you went ahead and did the right things, as far as Zeus was concerned, you went off and irritated Hera, and mm-hmm. there wasn't any way that you could avoid these kind of dilemmas. Um, I mean, that's what plays like Antigone are all about. We have dual responsibilities that often conflict, and there isn't any absolutely right way to, to resolve those. So I, I think when we find ourselves in dilemmas, um, there's, no, there's no way to just pretend that we know what the right thing to do is in these situations. There's always some degree of careful deliberation that we have to do, factors that we have to weigh. In the end, we just have to make a choice, even if even if it isn't entirely clear what to do. But but I don't think we just because we are have reached some enlightened state, we automatically know what the right thing is to do. There's always discernment and deliberation and rationality that that has to be involved. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that our ethical decisions are ultimately rational in the end. They're based a lot on our um, our instincts and our preferences and our conditioning and our enculturation and everything else and our biology, feelings of, for example, disgust or feelings of attachment that uh, are beyond our control. Uh, and then on top of it all, we have this layer of rationality in which we try to kind of rationalize things and make, make things more consistent. Um, but it never becomes a totally logical process, but it can never be devoid from some kind of active of decision making and discernment. So it's the, it, it, uh, it's the it's the it's uh, the skill that um, Aristotle called phronesis or practical wisdom and and revolves uh, a lot of cognition.
2: Okay so so maybe that's a good time to start uh, going into the the Greek forebearers here because the the distinction you make or the way you describe it is that what you're interested in is a eudaimonic enlightenment. Um uh, and, and that, of course, is a Greek term. So maybe you could say something about that, what, what that means to you and what it meant to the tradition, as you understand
1: it. Yeah. Uh, the idea is, uh, I mean, there are a number of different Greek ideas about eudaimonia, depending on which philosophy you're looking at. But I'm relying mostly on, on Aristotle. And Aristotle has an idea about what an admirable or noble or meaningful or good human life is. And that life is one in which one exercises virtue and wisdom that everything you do is an expression of the virtues you've inculcated and nourished and uh, strengthened in yourself. And it's the result of being able to apply practical wisdom. And that if people live lives in accord with virtue and wisdom, they're realizing their highest level of being. Um, And that, that the kind of happiness that comes from that is going to be higher than the kind of happiness that comes from say, sensual pleasure or self-indulgence and pure selfishness, for example. Uh, and he says that people who have, um, have kind of become virtuous and wise in this kind of way, um, they still can, terrible things can happen in your life and they can still upset your equanimity and still upset your happiness, but it would take an awful lot to do it. And you're much more resi- resilient and much more resistant to these kinds of changes of fortune and vagaries of fortune than, than someone who hasn't cultivated these virtues. Um, and in many ways, the, the, the Aristotelian idea of virtue and wisdom is very much like the Buddhist idea of sila and, and prajna. I mean, we talk about that, too. And in some ways, um, the Aristotelian idea of wisdom, of wisdom and virtue leading to flourishing is very par- runs parallel to the Buddhist idea of, of sila and prajna leading to some kind of um, bodhi or awakening.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: I don't remember how you you um, translate it, but practical wisdom, something like that. Um, right, it's, and, it's, knowing,
1: yeah. it's, it's knowing the right thing to do at the right time with the person, how much is the right amount to do it. It's, for example, in a situation that might call for honesty or courage, knowing exactly how honest you ought to be or how courageous you ought to be in that particular situation, because not all situations cause, call for the same degree of honesty or courage appropriate it's knowing what to do what's appropriate knowing how to navigate your way through the social world so that you can effectively operate in that world and and uh, and accomplish what you want to accomplish
2: so so it strikes me that that is an element in understanding wisdom let's say that you don't see so much in Buddhism I mean they, they don't talk about everyday practical affairs I mean I think I, I I'm pretty sure that someone who has developed the, um, the qualities of wisdom, the ideas that they know what to do in every situation. But it's not like a, a separate thing that they cultivate.
1: Although we do talk about, and maybe more in the Theravada tradition than other traditions, we do talk about cultivating discerning wisdom and clear seeing. Mm-hmm. So that, for example, when working with a desire that comes up in the mind, um, we're asked to kind of think about um, if we indulge in this desire, what is likely to happen as a result? Will it lead to happiness or will it lead to unhappiness? Is it skillful or unskillful to engage in it? And be able to recognize, you know, and and make a decision then about whether to continue on with engaging with that desire or whether to drop it in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we do think about that kind of decision-making process within Buddhism as well. I don't think it's alien to it. No. I think Aristotle has developed that more fully, but I think there's, there are real parallels there.
2: Mm-hmm. So so I've been thinking as we talked about this theme um, about a talk I heard many years ago um, from a Zen teacher who had been leading a, um, a retreat and the meditation hall caught fire. Um, and uh, he noticed it. I mean, you know, he was sitting facing the fire, so he was perhaps the first person to notice that everybody else was not. And um, what struck me was he said, well, you know, before I did anything, I I lowered my eyes down again um, and and tried to contact a sort of place of inner calm and and wisdom. And then when I opened my eyes again, the fire was now 10 times bigger. So then he got got moving and did some things. But, um, you know, it seems like that's an attempt to settle into a kind of a place where you can have an intuitive response that's helpful is—is is that a—is that consistent with what you're saying?
1: Yeah, a, absolutely. Um, uh, you just reminded me of another story. Um, Larry Rosenberg, who's an, an Insight meditation teacher in Cambridge, and was one of my first teachers, said that if you were in a meditation hall and it caught fire, you would not just sitting there going warm, warmer, <laughs> warmer, and just mentally noting. He says <laughs> if you're a real Bodhisattva you'd be the first person helping everyone out of the building.
2: <laughs> right. So, uh,
1: but yes, I, th- I think I think one of the things we do, one of the advantages or one of the benefits of meditation is cultivating this kind of quiet, clear spaciousness inside, um, which is a kind of a, um, a, a space of great equanimity and a great calm. And it's a place where one can um, cle- more clearly discern what the important factors are that one ought to be responding to in the moment. So, I mean, that's something that I would do often. I, I think, I think that kind of clear, calm, open space is something that uh, long-term meditators can always contact in almost any situation. They can take a breath and stop and respond to the situation rather than just react in a knee jerk fashion to it. And often that allows that, that, that breathing space allows some space for greater clarity to emerge. But, uh, it doesn't just emerge by itself. There actually is a kind of a mental process going on there.
2: Okay. So um, maybe maybe um, what you've said and it already answers this question, but um, it did strike me as I was reading about eudaimonia and, and a kind of eudaimonic um, understanding of enlightenment, whether it doesn't kind of drift over into Western parallels. I mean Aristotle definitely but but um, you know in the in the Hellenistic area era you get stoicism which is really seems to be more of a spiritual path um, or at least well I don't know, I don't want to say that but, but you know what I'm well, getting well, at and, and stoicism is having its moment so so my question really is you know would there be much difference? I mean why not just say well don't bother to read the Sudas at all you know just read Marcus Aurelius.
1: Yeah, well, 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 there are some real parallels between uh, the Stoic attitude towards, um, towards the vicissitudes of life, you know, to, to pain and gain and loss and uh, fame and so forth, uh, and their recommendation that one um, remain unattached to these things uh, in the face of them. And the, and the Buddhist attitude, there are a lot of parallels between them. Um, Aristotle would not have agreed with the uh, with the Stoic approach to things, which says non attachment to everything, because Aristotle would believe that there are things we ought to be attached to and that should matter to us, um, and and we we ought to be discerning about those things that are really important to our well being and the well being of our fellow beings, and those things that are really maybe desirable but really unimportant in some fundamental way. So, um, I mean, that's one of the complaints about the Stoic system now. Now, I, I think one question you're asking is, is Stoicism a kind of a Buddhism stripped of some, um, s- some more grand vision of life? Okay, Whether, whether, uh, whether a naturalistic or a transcend- transcendental one that, that Buddhism might have. Uh, I'm concerned, for example, that uh, I don't know enough about Stoicism to know if it stresses the connection to all beings and compassion and loving kindness for all beings that Buddhism does. And I, I'd be concerned about a, a stoicism that was just concerned with you maintaining your own equanimity in the face of misfortune and not really concerned about the well-being of the community and the well-being of others. Um, I don't know if that answers the question you're addressing or not.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that, seems, that seems fine. Um, I think they did have some sense of a universalist ethics, but I don't know that much about stoicism either. So maybe it's not,
1: it's not so helpful to, to pursue that
2: thread particularly.
1: Uh, well, I, I think I think one of the important things is uh, about Buddhism, and, and this is a critique of Aristotle and Stoicism, is I think that um, the Aristotelian and Stoical approach are too self-centered in a way, too centered on the self and the well-being of the self, and not enough centered on um, a, a community, not just a human community, but, but the, the whole community of beings that we live with and the whole ecological system that we're a part of. And uh, and I think Buddhism moves us closer to that—a a kind of deconcern with self so much, um, and a more cons- more concern with serving others as, as an essential as essential ingredient in our well-being.
2: So so let's talk a little bit about that sense of self because, so so let me just play devil's advocate for a moment here. If if um, you know if you say well Westerners are really not going to be able to accept or feel comfortable with certain elements of the Buddhist teachings. Um, So, you know, why put, why put yourself, if you're someone trying to develop a spiritual path, why put yourself in that position of of facing inherent conflict? But then isn't it true that Westerners are also not going to be very comfortable with the idea of um, not putting an emphasis on the self? I, I mean, you do say you don't think we need to get rid of the self completely. But it's certainly fundamental in the Buddhist teachings that you don't hold on to or cling to a sense of self. And yet, in you know, in our culture, we're really good at that. We hold on to the self very strongly.
1: Yeah. So well, well, I, I think you have to be clear about the. I, I don't mind the idea that a new tradition can come in and really challenge our beliefs and shake them up and make us think differently about them. Those are welcome. But but they can't be so inconsistent with the other things that we believe that it, it's, it's like if someone tried to make us believe in the ancient Roman religion right now of the various <laughs> gods on Mount Olympus or, or wherever, wherever they were, the Greek gods on Mount Olympus, for example, right there's, there's no way that I could be convinced that Thor and, uh, and uh, Zeus and characters like that are living on top of mountain running things anymore. It's too inconsistent with everything else I understand. And the same thing comes with a lot of the teachings in Buddhism. I can't believe that Mount Meru is the center, the geographical center of the universe, for example, or um, uh, you know, if you if you if you denominate all the different realms of rebirth and the different levels of heavens and hells and so forth, I don't, I can't remember what number they come to, but it's thirty some odd of them. I can't believe in that kind of cosmology. It just doesn't work for me. Um, on the other hand, challenging the degree of selfishness we have. And understanding how our happiness is intimately connected with the happiness and well-being of those around us, I think is an idea that that Westerners can be open to. It challenges our usual assumptions, but it's not inconceivable for us that that might be true. And I think there are ways that we can go ahead and experiment it. And we find that, in fact, the more we begin giving to others, uh, the more we're less concerned about whether whether others love us and the more we love others. Actually, the better we feel, the more expansive we feel, the more open we feel, the more relaxed we feel, the more, you know, the the greater degree of equanimity we have, the more meaningful our lives become. I mean, this is an experiment we can conduct and see for ourselves whether it works or not. Right, and I suppose with regard to say rebirth,
2: it would be hard to conduct that experiment because you'd never really get any
1: uh, any data, right? (laughs) Or, or you'd get data, but you'd get conflicting data and and you wouldn't know what to believe. I, re- I remember Joseph Goldstein telling the story about how one of his Tibetan teachers said he was a reincarnation of one of the arhats uh, in, the, in the Theravadan canon. And he was all confused about, well, but according to the Theravadan canon, he, this arhat became rich nirvana and wouldn't have been reborn. How could this person be the reborn version of that? And he spent a long time worrying about it, you know? And finally he just said, well, who knows? <laughs> And left it at that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true about a lot of the more arcane Buddhist teachings that the best we can do as contemporary Westerners raised in this culture is to say, well, it's interesting. It might be true, but really in the end, who knows? And can I base my life and the direction of my life and the things I care about most and the, and the existential direction I'm taking on something that is just interesting, but who knows? I have to base it on some foundation that's more vital to me. So, so.
2: Let me go to the, um, I, I mean, as a way of going into this more, I, I'm thinking of certain Jatakas. You you talk about several Jatakas in, in, yes. um, in the book. But I, I I actually don't remember which one this is right now, but it's kind of characteristic. It's one where the Buddha is a king or, or prince. He's a king, I guess. And um, he has this great royal elephant. And royal elephants, the way I've always thought of it, was it's sort of like a... Um, like having the nuclear bomb, you know, it's like if you have this big elephant, you can defeat any enemy in, in battle. And so this kingdom has, has this elephant, and so they enjoy peace. And one of the um, the rulers of another land goes to the king and says, please give me your elephant. And the king says, great, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful opportunity to practice generosity. Of course, you can have the elephant. And his advisors say wait a minute this is not a good idea this is going to have terrible <laughs> terrible this is going to have terrible terrible consequences and there's a long discussion in the jataka so you know how can you do this you're going to destroy the kingdom you're, you're you're not being faithful to your own obligations as king and he says no no my obligation is to do this really extreme thing because that will help me advance on the on the bodhisattva path so that i can really lead all beings to liberation so, so where that takes me, is sort of a long story, but where that takes me is, um, you know, maybe you do need to go to extremes sometimes. I mean, isn't that one way of understanding what some of these very difficult concepts in Buddhism are about?
1: Well, okay. So let me take another Jataka tale, which I do mention in the book, which is the one where the Buddha uh, gives up his children to a greedy beggar who then begins to abuse them and whip them. Yeah. And at first... The, the Buddha in his previous incarnation gets angry and then he lets go of it and, and says, no, <laughs> you know, I've given them up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways this is constant with this, this, the Buddha's story himself, where he, where he leaves his wife alone. Uh, he calls his child Rahula, a fetter and kind of abandons the child while he goes off to seek his own enlightenment. Um, there's a sense of kind of giving up everything for this process. Um, do we sometimes have to go to extremes? Well, yes. I mean, there are occasions, for example, where a parent will give up his or her own life for the well-being of his child, right? There are times when a, a, uh, someone defending their land in a war will give up their own life to defend their homeland. There are, there are times that do call for extreme sacrifice. But uh, but that's not the way we lead our everyday life, okay? We don't expect to to give away our children or give up our lives or give away everything we have just for anyone who comes and asks for it. Because... I mean, walk outside your door if you live in New York and there are probably tens of thousands of people who are in great need. And you can easily give everything you have to everyone there. And uh, and, and while that will be a noble thing and will help those people that you gave it to, um, it doesn't solve the world's problems, you know. And, th- and there you will be without anything. I mean, there's a kind of, there's a question about how much we have to do in order to be good. Um, I, I give the example, I think, in the book of... Um, you know, you, you read about some charity that's a worthy charity and you decide to give them $25 and you get a little bit of hit of dopamine and you feel good about having been generous, but then you realize you could have given more. And then where are the limits on what you can give? I mean, you, you're living in a maybe nice house. Maybe you don't need a nice house. Maybe you just need a one room, single occupancy room in a hotel. So you give up your house and, uh, gee, you have two kidneys. Maybe you don't need two kidneys. You give away one and so forth. And, you don't read, need to read a newspaper every day. You stop your subscription to the newspaper. I mean, there's no end to the need out there in the world. And, um, and and I think in Western philosophy, we talk about good deeds that are kind of obligatory and those that are supererogatory that, that are good deeds, but beyond what we expect people to do. Um, and we may be called by certain circumstances to do those extreme things, but that's not the way we want to be living our lives ordinarily. I mean, Ordinarily, the Buddhist tradition handles this by saying that you have to have compassion for yourself as well, that you're one of the beings that you're including in uh, universal compassion. Right. I, I, so so, 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 he, so, I guess there are two questions here. One is, is it good to push against our limits and see whether we're capable of more than we are now? And the answer there, of course, is yes. Let's, let's always be seeking to see what those limits are and see if we can move beyond them in a reasonable way. But then, are we, is it reasonable to have no limits at all? and have no preference for self at all in any situation. And I don't think that's a practical way for people to live.
2: Yeah. So so let's stay with that theme for a little bit. The the um, You quote um, Ajahn Chah, a very well-known uh, forest monk who lived in the 20th century. Uh, you quote him as saying, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace.
1: So, yes, I do quote him. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. You quote him, and then I, I think you you disagree. I mean, I don't know that you saved. You, well, well,
1: I'm he, saying that in yeah. some ways that's the best case for mm-hmm. for why one ought to mm-hmm. go for a more um, uh, extreme view of enlightenment. Let's say, mm-hmm. um, I'm not I'm not sure that that's true though. Uh, in other words, I'm not sure that the goal of life is to just live in in complete peace. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I I believe that there are cases to be made for lives of accomplishment. You know, Um, I'm glad that there are people who don't accept things as they are, but invent vaccines and, uh, and uh, event. I'm glad we have electrical power and I'm glad we've eradicated smallpox. I think there are reasons to strive in the world and not accept things exactly as they are. So this idea of just letting go and living conclusions, is not exactly um, my idea of, what I think human beings ought to be doing. I mean, as we're born, okay, if we just uh, allowed ourselves to be and accept everything as we are, we'd remain infants. You know, it's uh, it's our desire to walk like adults and to speak like adults and to manage to learn all kinds of tasks that move us ahead in the world. We learn, we learn to tie our shoes and we learn the alphabet. And that's what development is all about, pushing ourselves um, not just to accept the way things are, but to move beyond that. So um, I, I guess what I'm objecting to is the idea of this kind of complete peace and acceptance of everything as an ultimate goal. There, there's a good side to it. I mean, we all ought to accept more than we do right now. And we ought to find a greater place for peace in our lives than we do now. But I also think there ought to be some kind of balance.
2: So, so you know, th- this, um, this quote from Ajahn Chah reminded me of something that I've heard in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, which is very similar, but actually it goes to the question of faith. And and you don't really talk about faith too much, I don't think, in this book. So maybe we could talk about that. But let me sure. first give you the let me first give you the quote. Um, uh, it, it's talking about having faith in your teacher, the Lama. You know? And it says, mm-hmm. um, if you see your Lama as an ordinary being, you'll have ordinary benefits. If you see your Lama as a great being, you'll have great be- benefits. If you see your Lama as enlightened, you'll become enlightened. So, yeah.
1: Well. Well, my fr- my first reaction to that is um, how how many how many stories have we heard in the last couple of decades about students who were abused by their teachers because they uh-huh. saw them as extraordinary beings? Um, I, I I don't think we can take that quite literally. I mean, I think that the person in front of us always is an ordinary being with problems, just like every other being, and they might be exemplars of something that we would like to be more like, and we should. Go ahead and and but they they probably won't be exemplars in every possible way for us, you know they might they, they might be very good at one or two or three things that we would like to get from them. Um, I, I I think the uh, to say that the teacher is a kind of a perfectly enlightened Buddha and we ought to see them that way. Maybe the way I would correct that is is we can benefit maybe from seeing everybody in that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, that everybody, is, as a, but I don't think the teacher is special in that way above above everyone else. Um,
2: okay, so so I mean, it, it, you know, it's not quite fair to start talking about faith because you really don't bring that up in the book, and I don't know whether you've talked about it elsewhere. But, um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think I, I don't talk about it. I'm, I'm not opposed to certain kinds of faith, but it's, but it's the kind of faith that you develop out of your own practice. In other words, you test ideas for yourself. Um, and you know you go you uh, you go ahead and see what's possible for you as you do it. And you see whether it's, it's the same thing with all the, with the precepts, for example, not lying and not stealing and not killing. And so you try them on and you see whether your life doesn't improve if you adhere to them. And, and when you see that it in fact does improve, you develop faith that this is the right way to go, but it's a faith that that's developed on experience and not, uh, and doesn't, and doesn't necessarily exist very, uh, beforehand before then it's a, it's a hope, it's not a faith before then.
2: Okay. So, so let me raise another
1: question. Um,
2: you say, let's see if I can find this in my notes here, you quote Barry uh, Magid,
1: is that how he pronounces his name? Um, uh, you know, I'm never sure how he pronounces his name, but that's a good, <laughs> that's a good approximation. <laughs> okay,
2: okay. Well, so you say, you know, traditionally the idea, somebody... Who wanted to be uh, to be practice the Buddhist path would would formally, I guess, leave home, you know? and mm-hmm. and then you you quote him and and say, well, you it's better to understand that metaphorically, and and the quote I think this is your language was what is left behind or renounced is the comfort of our received conditioned ideas, not the comfort of our actual typically middle class lives. So I, I understand why you'd say that, but it does seem like you're kind of um, you know, encouraging people to stay comfortable in, in in the way they live their lives and whether that's really enough of an uh, inducement to move on the path. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, I, I don't think people should ever be comfortable with the way they live their lives. I think I, I'm, I'm very much... Um, in line with John Dewey, who said our life ought to be a life of continuous inquiry. And we never come to a place where we rest. We're always inquiring further and further and seeing if this is true or not and finding ways to improve our understanding of things and always understanding that whatever understanding we reach is only a way station on the way to further understanding. I think what I would want to argue is um, is that I think it's possible to develop all the qualities that I think about that Buddhism that the Buddhism I'm talking about, this kind of modified Uddhamotik Buddhism, all the qualities that you want of it, but within the within the crucible of the family and within the workplace. I don't think you have to you have to leave your family and leave your workplace in order to develop them. I mean, there's there's no more contentious place than the family, and the workplace, where you can work on all of these things, uh, looking at your desires and your aversions and your attachments, understanding what's really skillful in them, finding ways to kind of open your heart further trying to be able to uh, be less self-centered. I mean, all of that, there's nothing like raising children and being married and, and working for an employer to kind of bring all that out in a very dramatic way. And I'm all in favor of working on those things here and now. I don't think you have to go any other place to do the practice. The practice is always right in front of you and always unfolds right where you are, right from where you are.
2: So you mentioned in the book that, that just in passing, you say, well, you know, people. There are people that are living their lives. They're practicing Dharma or, or practicing Buddhism in their lives, and then you say, you know, they do go off on retreats. Um, and and I wonder, how do you think about that? What's the what's the aim or intention in taking, you know, time for an intensive practice? How does that fit in with the way you see?
1: Well, I think you know, it's, I think it's really important. Um, so I mean, when you're when you're doing meditation for say maybe an hour a day or something like that. Um, and it's, it, there's only so far you can go with the meditative practice. Um, I don't want to talk about depth here cause that's probably the wrong word, but, but there are certain experiences that you can only have when you're dedicating yourself to it, um, entirely, you know, for many, many, many hours a day for many, many days in a row. And, and I find that there are, there are places of great for, uh, on a, on a uh, speaking on a smaller level or not so grand level, there are level, There are there are periods of great peace and equanimity and tranquility and bliss that you can arrive at, for example, on a retreat that you could never achieve, you know, sitting at home and just sitting for an hour or two. Um, and there also there are there are um, experiences of great openness, um, experiences like satori, mystical experiences for example, that you would probably rarely have at home, but are more likely to have on a retreat. But even more important than that, um, we, we find ways to kind of ruin our practice. Um, uh, when, when I'm talking about Zen practice, for example, shikantaza, Taza, we're not supposed to have any aim or intention, um, that nothing we're trying to accomplish or gain while we're doing the practice. But we secretly sneak these things that we want to gain into our practice all the time we're, we're trying to become more concentrated or we're trying to become more calm or we're trying to become more open or more loving or more wise whatever it is we're trying to do we have this secret agenda that we're trying to accomplish we're trying to be more awake and not fall asleep (laughs) we're trying to escape whatever pain we're having in our knees um there's a way when you're on a long retreat when you try all these different strategies to accomplish what you want to do and in the end you realize that none of them work and you kind of give all of them up finally and and all of a sudden, in that moment of absolute surrender and no longer trying to accomplish anything, a whole new vista will open up for you. In that moment, a whole new experience, and you would never go that with just occasion. Never get that with occasional sitting. So I think I think some of the deepest insights I've gotten from sitting experience have not been from just daily sitting sprints, but from these longer uh, retreats. You know, whether it's seven or ten or fourteen days.
2: Okay. Well, that that certainly makes sense. Um, it again, it's. So one of the questions that I had, and, and we talked about this earlier on, is you, know, you said this is what has made sense to you and, and you want to share it. And I think you're very open about saying, um, you know, this is like a thought experiment, you say at one point, in, in one way of mm-hmm. understanding Buddhism. Um, so there's that side. So this is what you have to share. There's also your sense that this is, in fact, the direction that Buddhism is going in.
1: Um, yes. Yeah. So, so when I when I read the writings of, and I, again I haven't read every tradition, so I don't want to make a statement in that way. But when I read the writings of contemporary Zen teachers, or when I read the writings of contemporary Insight meditation teachers, or I read the writings of secular Buddhists like um, like Stephen Batchelor, for example, um, uh, I'm I'm seeing that the same kinds of things I'm talking about are are, are showing up in these texts that I'm reading. Or I, I don't know I mean, how, how many thousands of Dharma talks I've listened to over the years. But when I listen to the Dharma talks in the Zen tradition in a number of different settings where I, where I exist, or I remember the ones I had uh, in the insight meditation tradition or ones I had when I was studying with Tony Packer, this is the way that Dharma is going. There's less and less talk about achieving a, a, a perfect state of enlightenment. In fact, Jack Kornfeld in his book talks about spiritual maturity rather than enlightenment. Um, There's less of a sense that there's some place that you go and you hit it and you have this experience and then you're there. Okay. Because, because nobody's really, nobody's writing these books has really had that experience. Okay. They've had this kind of gradual experience of being, becoming more caring and less self-centered and more connected to their lives, more connected to their bodies, more, more in touch with the pulse of life. I mean, they've had this kind of experience. And that's what they write about. Um, so, so I I do see that trend, um, throughout, at least the Buddhist world that I'm, that I'm familiar with. Um, and sometimes it's openly acknowledged and yeah, this isn't, this isn't what the sutras say. Right. But, um, but sometimes, but a lot of times it's not openly acknowledged. A lot of times it's taught as if this is what the Buddha said, you know, and I've heard a lot of people say that a lot of teachers say, you know, the Buddha said X, Y, or Z. And I know for darn sure the Buddha never said that <laughs> in fact what they're saying is a lot more of the kind of thing that I'm talking about right now
2: yeah I, I yes and I' I'm, I've noticed that also that there is a tendency to people say well the way I understand it you know that's actually what the Buddha said it's been kind, uh-huh. of, kind of been buried and hidden so I do think it's good to be upfront about that and say this is how I'm seeing it
1: and yeah. and again no, to, no, to, no, yeah. now now I now I think I think there are a lot of reasons um culturally yeah while this will continue to be maybe the main direction that Western Buddhism continues to move in, it's more of a lay practice than a, than a monastic practice. Uh, it's going to be more done uh, with people remaining in families and work than leaving them. Um, it's going to be more aimed at um, increasing equanimity and compassion and um, a kind of openness to experiencing and less aimed at chi- achieving some kind of uh, ultimate wisdom and perfection. Um, That's not to say that all of Buddhism will go that way. I mean, Buddhism has always been uh, multivocal. It's always had competing and contrasting uh, schools that have contended with each other. And I think that will continue into the future. We'll have very orthodox schools within the various traditions, and we'll have um, syncretic schools that that blend various teachings from different schools together, and we'll have secular Buddhist schools. I mean, I I think we'll see this whole rich panoply of different um, practices. But I think most people will, who call themselves Buddhist, will opt, you know, for a, 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 a practice that aims less at a kind of perfectionism.
2: Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to ask you what is going to be my final question, which is: is do you see yourself continuing to explore these issues, or what? Where do you see yourself going next? Maybe in terms of another book or whatever's on your agenda.
1: Uh, well. I am very much interested in, uh, I, I mean, I I love when I read things that people think they understand and I just get confused by them. I always want to dig deeper into understanding where that confusion comes from. So uh, as, as a practitioner within the Zen tradition, it means going back to China and looking at the classical Chinese Buddhist texts. And I've, I've been learning Mandarin, for example, so that I can, can read them for myself. Um, but as I explore Buddhist history more, I begin to see where a lot of the confusions and disputes come from. Um, let, let me give you one example of this, the thing that I've been working on lately. Uh, we talk about emptiness in, in all the Buddhist traditions, all the Mahayana traditions especially, but especially I'm thinking specifically about the Zen tradition, and some of the Zen texts, the classic Zen texts. And I'm discovering that there seems to be three different meanings of emptiness in these texts. Um, one of them is the is the Madhyamaka understanding of it in terms of the absence of self-nature that is the kind of classical mainstream tradition. But as uh, Jaya uh, Jayarava Atwood wrote in a recent article in Tricycle, if you look at uh, the emptiness, for example, in the Heart Sutra, there are suggestions that it's really maybe talking about something else. It's talking about the experience of um, the disappearance of the phenomenal world in while practicing the yoga of non-apprehension. So if you're looking at the um going past the jhanas and to the formless absorptions and beyond that, there are mental states in which all um all perception, sight, hearing, um, touch, sensation, sense of self, temporality, and everything, all of it disappears. And there's just um a kind of awareness of of maybe um consciousness itself, so to speak, which has no content to it. Um and there's some suggestion that at least the people who wrote the uh, Paramitra sutras that the heart sutra is based on who were writing before Nagarjuna may have been talking about emptiness as a phenomenological experience of the absence of sense experience rather than talking about it in terms of the traditional Madhyamaka sense. And then um, there's a recent book written on Zen's Taoist roots. Um, I think Hinton was the author of that. And he talks about uh, emptiness um, in terms of an early Chinese teaching called uh, dark or mystery learning, um, and that looked at um, the Tao, for example, as a kind of a void from which all the um, ten thousand things manifested out of. So that being manifests out of this kind of fertile non-being, and they talk about emptiness in that sense as this kind of absence. Of the word, uh, well, I don't want to get into the the uh, the, uh, the philology of it. Well, that's yet a third meaning of um, of emptiness. And if you read some of the Zen texts, it's very unclear. They use some of the same words that the dark learning theorists in China use. It's very unclear which version of emptiness are they are talking about. Are they talking about the phenomenal emptiness, the fertile void emptiness, or the uh, or, or the fact that no dharmas have self existence? And there's a way in which all these theories seem to blend into each other and get a little bit confusing so I've been basically just trying to track some of this down try to understand better um, all the different variations of meaning and um, and and get a better sense of what the Zen tradition itself is really trying to say as a result of that so so that's one area that I'm moving in now I've also been reading more uh, as I've been reading more Chinese I've been reading more about the Confucian tradition and uh, Confucius and Mencius and finding some very strong Confucian, elements expressed within Zen as well. And um, so so one of the things I've been looking at is not only in the past I've looked at the relationship between, say, Aristotelian ethics and Buddhist ethics, and now I'm looking at Confucian ethics as well and seeing seeing uh, what we can learn by looking at all three and comparing and contrasting them.
2: Okay, great. Well, it sounds like you've got, your plate is full. <laughs> and I do. Maybe you, <laughs> and... <laughs> And maybe you'll be able to share some of that in, in future writings. That would be great. I hope so. I hope so. Okay. Well, Seth, thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, I appreciate it. And I, uh, I look forward to seeing where things go for you.
1: Thank you, Jack. It's been a real pleasure.